The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. I'd like to invite you to open your copy of God's Word with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, stretch out your hand for a Bible and open with me there. Um, and as you're turning there, I want to acknowledge a few things, one of which is I understand that my microphone is coming in and out. I'm working on it and trying to get it tuned in right. Uh, Eddie was in here earlier with me, and it had no problems before everybody was here. And then everyone showed up, and it went on the fritz. Well, I'm glad you came, even if the microphone is going a little haywire, doing the best we can, hang in there with it. I'll get it tuned in week by week. Uh, another thing to acknowledge is that one of the commitments that we have as a church, and one of the commitments we have as the session of the church, is that God intends that you as a Christian believer would grow by a steady and ordinary diet of what's called the means of grace, which is quite ordinary, namely by the preaching of the Word of God in an organized and systematic, continual way of expository preaching, meaning we open the Bible, and we go to a text, and then we preach that text, and then next Sunday we'll go to the next section, and then the next, and the next. So that what you're growing by is a steady diet of the Scriptures, and not my ingenuity, and not my storytelling, and not my wit, but rather the Scriptures themselves. And so we believe in regular expository preaching. Well, it's been 18 weeks, but we're going back to the Sermon on the Mount, in which we had spent much time on last year, and just before the pandemic that uh, took us to the Psalms of Ascents, which was a delight. We finished that time, but we come back to Matthew 18. Now, here's the thing, or Matthew 5, excuse me. We're going right back to where we left off. So it might seem a little strange to you to begin the next section of a teaching block on the topic that we're focusing on this morning, as you see the heading of what Matthew 5, 27, and 30 is all about, but it's the next text. And so therefore, it's where we are this morning. I acknowledge that because what the Lord is going to say to us this morning in His Word is going to make you squirm. And Jesus is going to put his finger on a spot that we would rather him not talk about, which is exactly why we need to hear it. Uh, and so we acknowledge that, and we trust the Lord to speak to us in his word, even on topics that we might find to be uh, slightly discomforting. Nevertheless, it's the word of God, and so we believe it. So let's pray. If you've got your Bible open, let's ask God's blessing on his word, and then hear it this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pause to ask your blessing on the Scriptures this morning. For you, by human authors, record these words for us by the inspiration of your Spirit. And so, Lord, this is exactly what we need to hear. And so we pray, Lord, that by that same Spirit that so moved Matthew to record these words for us, that that same Spirit would rest upon us to illuminate our minds, to give understanding, to give application, illumination, Lord, and transformation. For we, your people, desire to be your people in truth and in purity and holiness. And so, Lord, come 
and bless to us the reading and proclamation of your word that we might be transformed to be more like Jesus. For we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. And now hear the word of God from Matthew chapter 5 at verse 27 through verse 30. Hear the word of God, the word of the King. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever and ever. So may He write its eternal truth on our hearts today. We said it's been 18 weeks now. 18 weeks since we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, so it's going to require a very brief review of where we've been and what Jesus is doing. Because the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is a part of one of the largest teaching blocks that Jesus has. Everybody is fascinated with Jesus, and everybody wants to have Jesus confirm their agenda for the world. Everybody loves to say their opinions and suggest that Jesus agrees with them, when it's oftentimes better to just ask Jesus what he himself thinks and go right to what he says about things and then believe them. And so, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is one of those very unique portions of Scripture where Jesus has an extended teaching block where he addresses all kinds of things. Now, where we spent most of our time was at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 2 through 12, in which Jesus gives the Beatitudes, those blessed statements in which he is describing the character of the person who is a true citizen of his kingdom. What the person of God looks like who lives in his kingdom. And some people oftentimes think that Jesus is giving the Beatitudes to replace the Ten Commandments. And the reason why people suggest that is because they say, well, God gave Moses the law, the Ten Commandments, on Mount Sinai. Here is the greater Moses on another mountain giving another group of statements. Surely they displace the law that God gave to Moses and replace it with Jesus' words, right? Because that's how the Bible works, right? The New Testament is good and the Old Testament is bad. No, it's not the case. Jesus is not replacing the Ten Commandments. He is expounding on the Ten Commandments to say this. I've not come to overthrow the law. Look back at Matthew 5, verse 20. Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. Jesus is describing what it looks like for the Christian believer to be in pursuit of and display of exceeding righteousness or the manner of the true character of the Christian life. What does it look like? Jesus has said, I'm not come to overthrow the law, but fulfill it. And so then he launches into these applications 
of these various topics. They come like a shotgun blast. Six different topics. You can see the headings. Jesus came to fulfill the law, and so he addresses the issues of anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and love for enemies. So you see how the rest of the Matthew 5 breaks down. And in every time Jesus is giving this instruction, it comes with a format where he says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. And when he says, You have heard it said, he'll quote one of the Ten Commandments. But what he is doing is not overthrowing the Ten Commandments. What he is doing is saying, You have heard what the scribes and the Pharisees taught about what this means. You have heard their teaching about the true nature of a life that God is pleased with. But I'm going to contradict what you have heard for so long. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is emphasizing his authority and he is going to demonstrate that God's standard is higher than what the religious leaders of the day were teaching. And the point that he is always going to make is that the true, sincere Christian life is not one just of outward obedience, but one that sincerely receives the law of God in the heart. That is to say that the true Christian life is lived not just in the sight of other people, but rather also in secret before God in true sincerity. Jesus constantly evaluates our hearts. So... The last time we were in the Sermon on the Mount together, if you look back in verses 21 through 26, you'll see Jesus addressing anger, and he addresses the issue of murder, and he tells us that the sixth commandment of the prohibition of murder is not just obeyed when we don't kill people, but it's obeyed rather when we don't hold hatred in our heart, hold anger in our heart towards other people. So you see, he amplifies the application of the commandment to say, it's not enough to just outwardly obey. We must internally, in the heart, receive what God has said and live in this way. And so we move on. The next application of Jesus' teaching, and again, we're obviously addressing some sensitive material here, but let me say very clearly at the beginning that God has designed men and women with sexual desires. And that that desire finds its righteous expression in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. And the Bible makes no apologies of this. In fact, most of the time the Bible speaks of marriage, it makes us blush. But let's say it again. God's good design is marriage between men and women. And the problem comes when we take God's good design and use it in a way that it was never intended. We take even the very desires that God created us with and use them in a way that we are not supposed to use them. It's like fire. Hence the sermon title. Fire is good in and of itself. But when it comes to fire in the house, it belongs in the fireplace. Or else it's destructive. There is a righteous and good place for fire, but outside of that place, it is dangerous. That's what Jesus is saying to us this morning. So what I want to see together with you in this text is a what and a so what. A what and a so what. 
And the what, of course, is in verse 27 and 28, where Jesus quotes the seventh commandment and expands on it. Hear the words of the king again in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, Jesus is not contradicting the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment against adultery is good and righteous. He is contradicting the way the scribes and the Pharisees would teach the seventh commandment. He wants to make it clear that the law is not only external, meaning that we have not obeyed the law simply because we obey it externally. It must be kept deeper and more sincerely at the level of the heart because the law of God is always about your heart. The reason why Jesus has set out to contradict and destroy this kind of false religion was because it was rampant all over the place in his time, but we find that it's still all over the place today as well. Nothing has changed. The world is still as fallen as it is. But the guiding principles that the Pharisees lived by when they used the law of God was they would ask, how far can I stretch the law? How far can I stretch it to suit my own desires while still appearing outwardly righteous to other people? How can I get away with as much as I possibly can and still appear righteous in the eyes of other people? They were looking for a way out rather than a way of obedience. They were looking for a way to have it their own way and always excusing their behavior by saying, well, technically it's not wrong because I obeyed it outwardly. As it relates to this issue particularly, as you read the Gospels, you have actually several encounters of the Pharisees bringing to Jesus people caught in adultery, and the Pharisees and the scribes are all about demanding punishment for the person. We caught them, and they deserve punishment. They demand punishment, and they would be zealous to uphold the commandment in these situations because the person was caught. And that was the key, because in the interpretation of the Pharisees, the seventh commandment could only be violated if you were caught. Because if you get away with it, nobody knows. And if nobody knows, I'm innocent. That was the teaching of the Pharisees. So, we can go three directions here as we're looking at the what of the seventh commandment. We can think about it like Pharisees, and we can consider it only as it is, and consider it only physical, and it only matters if you get caught. Or we can take another take on it. We can consider it the way our culture does, and reject it outright, and celebrate it. What's wrong with it? We can go that way. Or, we can take it as it is and apply it to the heart as the Lord Jesus does. And if those are our three options, I think it's clear which one we must take. So, we want to hold and esteem the words of our Savior and we want to be people who not only receive His grace and gifts, but also live in a way that honors and obeys His word. And His concern for us is that we understand when it comes to this very sensitive issue that adultery is first a matter of the heart. And He says very, very clearly, lust is adultery. 
lust is adultery. Look at what he says again. That everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And never wanting to always make it about the grammar, still there is an important lesson here because the verb here, looks, could also be translated as keeps on looking. It's actually a participle. Continually looking. Not just a one-time glance, but a gaze, a fixation. And so this is distinguished from the unintended noticing of a member of the opposite sex, but rather emphasizing a second, third, fourth lingering glance for the purpose of sinful and unrighteous desires. Jesus is saying adultery, far before it's a physical act, is a spiritual act, an emotional act in the heart. Jesus does not allow us to excuse ourselves by saying, but I didn't do anything about it. I'm innocent. No, it's a matter of the heart. And let's say clearly, if this is a matter of the heart, whose heart? Whose heart? We need to be clear about the fact that this is not only a concern for those who are married. Adultery is not just a concern for those who are married. Does this also apply to the unmarried? To teenagers? And just to be clear, since Jesus is using the illustration that concerns men, does this apply to women as well? The answer, of course, in every case is yes. So here is the principle again, that God has created us with sexual desires, and just like fire has its proper place, so do those desires. And what Jesus is warning against is, again, the looking, the gazing, Anything that creates in you a sexual desire that cannot be fulfilled righteously. And so the question, the very uncomfortable question that the Lord Jesus asks every single one of us in the text is, what are you looking at? What are you looking at? And this is applied wide and far. It is the fixated gaze that turns the image bearers of God into objects for sexual consumption. And it is everywhere and celebrated in our culture from the obviously pornographic to what is now socially normative pornography, movies and books and commercials and blogs and billboards. And the amazing thing is that if Jesus is concerned about this 2,000 years ago, if Jesus is focused on wandering eyes, then how true is it today? Our sense of discretion and shame seems to be gone in comparison to the way it used to be. And these matters are now public and celebrated. But the point is is that Jesus calls his disciples to be different. Jesus calls his followers to live in the world, but not follow the world's ways. Our citizenship is not of the world, and so we don't live like it. And specifically as it relates to this issue, we are not to treasure and pursue and gaze and be fixated upon the fulfillment of our desires in an unrighteous way. Rather than adulterated impurity, we are to pursue purity and devotion to a spouse if we're married, but principally to the Lord who calls us to this way of life. That's the what that Jesus is after. It's not just physical, it's spiritual upon the heart. So what? So what? What are we to do? Jesus addresses that in verses 29 and 30. Again, hear the word of Christ. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members that your whole body go into hell. People oftentimes misappropriate the amount that Jesus speaks about hell, the amount that he speaks so directly on these topics. And he's getting very practical here, isn't he? That in the pursuit of purity and honoring the Lord, Jesus is calling on us to take drastic steps. That's the point of what he's saying here. To clarify, Jesus is not intended to be taken literally here. Although throughout church history, people have taken this literally and taken up orders of eunuchs and pursued castration for the purposes of these things. That's not what Jesus is calling you toward. He is not describing mutilation. We know that because he's already said it's a heart issue. So whether you have eyes or hands, regardless, it's still an issue. He is speaking in hyperbole to emphasize how severely this issue needs to be addressed by his followers. It's not mutilation. It's rather what is called mortification. Not mutilation, but mortification, which means the killing of sin. The killing of sin in our lives. Jesus means this. Take drastic action to get rid of whatever in the natural course of events is tempting you. Whatever it is, take drastic motives and intentions to get rid of it. Take whatever means necessary to control your natural passions that tend to flare out of control. And we apply this in a very broad way because Jesus is not giving absolute applications in every situation here because what tempts one person is different from what tempts the other person and what tempts one gender is perhaps different from what tempts another gender. Nevertheless, one person's private addiction to pornography can be as worse as someone's public enjoyment of some smutty romance novel in a coffee shop. But it's actually the same thing. Think of it this way. Again, Jesus is using the male application here, but it can be just as true, ladies, when the man in the Hallmark movie is so much more sensitive than your husband, and you wish he was more like him. It's the same thing, actually. So what do we have liberty to say, and how can we apply it? If your eye causes you to sin, don't look. If your foot causes you to sin, don't go. If your hand causes you to sin, don't do. Jesus' point of application is hypothetical, not universal. The point is, you know. You know what it is, and therefore, you know how this is to be applied. And so, very directly, if your conscience is being pricked by the Holy Spirit with regard to application here, regarding something that needs to be put out of your life, do what he says. Obey. If you need to change what you're watching, what you're reading, who you're associating with, if there is a relationship that seems innocent, then it needs to 
end, for the sake of your soul, Jesus is saying, and for the sake of your family. I had a friend of mine come to me after a long season admitting this. And in helplessness, he said, what do I do? He had met the woman in the course of his job. And after a few choice words, I told him, quit your job now. Quit your job. And he didn't. And it got worse. Jesus' point is take drastic action. Take drastic measures. Because the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greeds, because, the Apostle Paul says, the wrath of God is coming. Just as Jesus says in verse 29, he threatens the reality of eternal punishment for those who do not consider his word. And the reason why he does this is because, friends, you and I, we simply take sin far too lightly. We give it a passing glance. We say, oh, sin is just a sickness, or sin is just a cultural reality that has affected me. No, sin is personal and individual. It snares and controls, and responsibility is always on the individual. That's why Loved ones, the punishment of hell is not for institutions, it's not for cultures, it's not for cultural relics, it's for people. Sin sends to hell, unforgiven sin sends us to hell. But, who is speaking here? Who is the one who speaks to us, that makes us wiggle, that puts his finger on the spot and makes us ache? Who is the one that speaks to us? None other than the one who suffered our punishment that we might be delivered from hell. The one who suffered wrath for our impurities that we might be made whole to deliver us from our sinful passions and transform us to live as citizens of his kingdom. The one who loves us in faithfulness. And that's really the point of all of this I want you to see. That you and I as Christian believers are called to see that Jesus Christ is a covenant keeper who loves us with faithfulness and who loves us with patience, who loves us with purity and who will never forsake us. A different friend of mine, a friend from college, made a big impression on me because he kept on a, on a three by five note card on his desk it was there every time I saw it. And it just had a simple prayer on it. And it said this, Order my affections, Savior. Order my affections, Savior. The issue in your life and the issue in mine is what you love and what you treasure and what you pursue and what you value. To know Christ is to put away those false and deceitful idols that promise to love you, but who will only leave you in misery and guilt. And almost in every case, the subject that Jesus is addressing here is something that exists in privacy that lies to you. When Jesus and walking in the ways of Jesus is only that which will satisfy. Let me 
tell you how somebody else said it about the loveliness of Christ, the worthiness of Christ, and why He is worthy of your obedience in all ways. Listen to what Scottish pastor Samuel Rutherford has to say about the loveliness of Christ. He said, If I could invite and persuade thousands and 10,000 times of Adam's son to flock about my Lord Jesus and to come and take their fill of his love, oh, pity forevermore that there should be such a one as Christ Jesus, so boundless, so bottomless, and so incomparable in infinite excellency and sweetness, and so few come to him. Oh, you poor, dry, and dead souls, why will you not come hither with your empty souls to this huge, fair, and deep, and sweet well of life and fill all of your empty vessels? Oh, that Christ should be so large in sweetness and worth, and we so narrow and so void of all happiness, and yet men will not take hold of him. And Rutherford would say to us, as we hear Jesus speaking, that the one who speaks this word to you is of infinite worth and therefore obedience to that word is of supreme importance because he has first loved you with an infinite love that you might live in such a way to honor him. People of God, this is the word of the king. Let us hear and obey. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we sit under your word with delight that you would so speak to us and we pray or that you would transform us, that you would lead us to repentance, that you would lead us to confession and you would lead us to the forgiving grace that allows us to take delight in obedience. And so, Lord, bless your people. We pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.